this kind of conviction that Paul had. He definitely could be described as one who pants after God, who desires God. And the unfortunate thing that I find is far too often there are those who are settling with sort of this vague view and understanding of God and really devoid of any kind of passion whatsoever. And for my own soul, I am striving to, how do I cultivate a passion in my heart, an ongoing passion for God, a singular passion? How do I desire Him on a daily basis? Because He is, if you will, He is the infinite glorious one. Not only that, but He is all satisfying. We sing the songs, we read the passages in Scripture, but when I look at the life of Paul, this is what I see. And when Solomon takes us through this journey in Ecclesiastes, eventually this is where he's going to bring us, is that there's only one who can satisfy us. And God offers us this everlasting joy, this supreme joy in Him. We get to have this. And we don't have to wait till heaven to have this. We can have this now. And it isn't just merely happiness. So we looked at Psalm 16, verse 11, and the psalmist wrote this, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the truth. But I want to live in the reality of this. Solomon helps us to understand this, but as we've looked at the Psalms, and this is sort of what led me towards Ecclesiastes, and this is why I went back to these Psalms first before I came here, because of the journey they take us on. Psalm 14, a thesis statement, there is none good, not even one. Psalm 15 describes a person that we are not. The antithesis then is there is one good, and we are not that one. Who is the one? It is the Messiah. The synthesis then comes in Psalm 16. I say to the Lord, you, my Lord, I have no good apart from you. The only good I have in my life is Him and what comes through Him. Thus then we understand the, the building of these psalms together. I am a fool. I am not good. I am certainly not the one described in Psalm 15, verses 1 through 5, but the Messiah is that one, and we partake of His goodness. And thus, in 1611, at the end of these Psalms, we have this, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We must live this way, but we also must go out into the world and say to them, But you can also have this in the Messiah. You can have this kind of joy. You can have this kind of true pleasure and delight in your life. And you don't need the things of the world to have this because ultimately you can't have it through these things. You can only have it through a relationship with God. So Solomon is taking us on this journey. And if you will turn with me to chapter 2, he is going to continue his sermonette, if you will. And this is the second part of chapter 2 as we look at living it up will always let you down. He reminds us of the fact that a life without Elohim is an, a life that is under the sun. And we can use different ways to describe this. If we want to put it in our own terminology, it's like a hamster running on a treadmill. He lays this out in chapter 1 of the cyclical existence. And this is what the world deals with and everything that is under the sun looks at life in this way. It's like blowing bubbles. It's like spending your life shoveling smoke, however you want to describe it. This is what Solomon lays out for us. It is complete vanity in his futility, this life under the sun. 
Life is not always a bowl of cherries. Sometimes it is the pits. And we know this to be true. But we can have this view of life that is radically different than this. When we live life understanding there is that which is above the sun. So he takes us through this journey in chapter 2. We started looking at verses 1 through 3, the futility of pleasure. And this is society in which we live. We understand it is pleasure hungry. There is this drive for having pleasure in life and, and having all of these things and really living the life for some, the party animal. And this is what Solomon described for us in the beginning part of chapter 2. But it's interesting to me because Solomon's going to help us understand that he's not trying to describe God as some sort of celestial killjoy, that he's up there just watching us, trying to make sure that no one's having a good time. This is what Satan wants the world to think, and this is what he wants people in the church to think, that somehow that God is trying to rob us of life. But Jesus says, I came to give you not only life, but I came to give you abundant life. A life overflowing. True life indeed. And a true joy indeed. But Satan doesn't want others to understand this and know this truth. And so Solomon is going to take us there and he's going to help us to understand that there is goodness in God and there are these good gifts that he gives us. But as he talks about pleasure here in chapter 2 and he talks about laughter, this isn't just mere laughter. This is merrymaking. This is him living the life of the party animal in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, as he talks about this life and he describes it as vanity and emptiness. In and of itself, that is exactly what it is. It's like blowing bubbles and they look beautiful as you see them float and then all of a sudden they burst and they're no more and it's gone. He says this is the life of these experiences that we seek to have. You go and you want to have these things, you want to do these things, but in the end they're worthless. I mean you think of all the moments that we capture, pictures that we take of, of our life. How many pictures do you have on your phone? It's just crazy to me. Like we take so many pictures and we keep them on our phone. We probably don't even see half of them or even look at them. But what good do they do us in the end? When we go, those moments are gone, right? And we've already had them. That's why we take the picture so we can look back and remember that moment that we had, that we experienced. But when we're gone, they're all gone. Our kids may carry on some of these memories, but likely they're not going to. And by the next generation, definitely they're going to be gone. So all of these things that we seek to do and experience, when we go, they go. And the pictures don't mean anything to people because if they're not in the picture and they weren't at the situation that you took the picture of, what does it do? So someone inherits these pictures and guess what they're going to do? They're going to throw them away because they don't mean anything. But you think about all that we put into those moments and having that moment. And Solomon says, without God, all of these things are fleeting. They're vapid. They're empty. And he helps us to understand that this life of, of pleasure-seeking becomes, if you will, a selfish endeavor. As he walks through this section of chapter 2, he is over and over talking about I, 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 and for myself, for myself. And selfishness, we know it destroys true joy because those who are living purely for pleasure, they end up using other people to exploit them to get what they want. It's just all about me. It's what I experience. It's what I want to do. It's what I want to have. And I don't care who I walk on to get it. Therefore, those who live this kind of life, they end up with broken relationships and empty hearts. 
because they're going to drive everyone away from them, because everyone realizes that the only reason why they have you around is so that they can use you. And the reality is when we understand who we're supposed to be as God has designed us to be, we're meant to be channels, not reservoirs. We're not meant to take and receive even these gifts that God gives us, spiritual gifts, physical gifts, whatever they are, they're never meant to just be ours alone. They're meant for us to share. We're supposed to be channels. We're not supposed to hang on to them. Everything that we have from God is meant to pass through us and benefit others. But when we're living a life to try to have comfort and security, we find ourselves not willing to be self-sacrificing and not willing to be giving. And we become reservoirs rather than channels. So I love that song, Channels Only. Flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. So Solomon helps us to understand the greatest joy then will come in sharing God's pleasures with others, not hanging on to them for yourself. And if one lives for pleasure alone, enjoyment will decrease, and thus the intensity of pleasure increases. And this is the inevitableness of it. But the reality of it is that eventually you reach a point where there is diminishing returns. In other words, there is little any enjoyment whatsoever. And ultimately what it leads to is bondage. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's gambling, whether it's drugs, whatever it is, put it in the blank. Fill it in. Solomon says, stick anything you want in there. And here's the principle then. When pleasure alone is the center of life, the result will ultimately be disappointment and emptiness. So he is going to help us to see in the verses that come that sometimes the man who has everything actually has nothing at all. So he takes us through verses 4 and following, and we're going to walk through these rather quickly. Solomon lays out for us the futility of his of possessions. If anyone could give us a, a, a schooling on these things, it's Solomon. He had everything. I mean, essentially, we would say this. This was a man who had everything, <laughs> at least everything we would want in this lifetime if we were solely living for this world. He's going to help us understand the futility of materialism, property, parks, houses, earnings, whatever it may be. Stick it in there, but it's always about bigger and better. It's interesting how he starts. Verse 4, I enlarge my works. It's an interesting construction. He does it twice in this passage. Verse 4, chapter 2, and then verse 9 of chapter 2. So verse 4, we have, I enlarge my works. There's some ambiguity there, but it's, uh, it's a little bit clearer in the, in, the Greek, in the Hebrew. But then verse 9, he says this, And I became great and increased. Perfect tense. I became great, and then I surpassed. Far greater, more than. In other words, he wasn't satisfied with just being great. I want to be the greatest. I want to supersede everybody. I want to be, if you will, if I put it in, in terminology of today, I want to be the top dog. And that's really what he's saying here. So he is ultimately the perfect example of what a top dog looks like. Because as he lists all of these things, this is what he is laying out for us. And we need to understand that the top dog mentality grows out of egotism. Everything is for myself, for myself, for myself, for myself. 
He helps us to see what's at the root of all of this. But he takes us on this journey of all the things that he has accomplished and achieved. He is top dog when it comes to architecture. He's the ultimate achiever. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. One wasn't enough. I had multiple. This is not embellishment. <laughs> We've excavated sites of places that, that Solomon had built. Entire cities that he built. This man was a doer. I watched this series on the History Channel. I, I'm not a person who likes history, but I've become a person who likes history. I started studying history because I wanted to know the historical context in which we find books in the Bible, right, so that I can interpret them accurately. But I've found, like, now I have a, a taste for history, and I, I like watching these things. But it's interesting to watch. They had this series on those who, men who built America, and how they established all these businesses and they thrive. And it was always about conquering and doing more. And it was always about bigger and better. And that's what we celebrate here. For us, it's interesting because as you read through this passage with Solomon, we with a Western mindset can totally understand what he's talking about. Because everything for us as Americans, when we weigh things, we do it by number. People always ask, how many people you got at church? I don't know. I don't count. <laughs> don't have a clue. Whoever shows up on Sunday, that's all, I, that's all I know. And I don't want to know anything more than that. Because the reality is, if you start counting, you will start to compromise. Because you're going to start trying to make sure that people fill the seats and then stay in the seats. It always happens. It's inevitable. But this is how we think as Americans. It's always about how big is it? How much do you have? When you have a company you started yourself, how many employees do you have, right? How many do you have people do you have working for you? This is how we measure success. But this just let me tell you, biblically, that's not how God measures success. If you look at the life of Christ, he didn't seek to have mass crowds. He spent a lot of time driving them away by the things that he said. So Solomon, he takes us on this journey. He says, look, I've, I've established everything. I've had... Mega building projects, whatever you did, I did it 10 times, 100 times more. Everything was bigger, everything was better. Everything was for myself, he says, from verse 4 following. For myself, for myself, for myself. This is the refrain that runs through these verses. In other words, this wasn't done for humanitarian reasons. This wasn't philanthropic. I didn't try to make the world a better place for other people. I did it for me. In other words, I was all about building my empire. You know, some of us, we, we look at this and think, well, that's not me because I don't have multiple houses. I don't even have one, but I don't have multiple houses and I don't have multiple cars and I don't have multiple this or multiple that. But, you know, we all have our slice of the pie, though. I mean, how many times I've heard guys talk about, you know, I'm the king of my castle. <laughs> And then you go there and they have the slice of their paradise. They have their nice manicured yards and their gardens and everything else that they do. And I'm not saying that we can't have those things, right? But these things aren't just for the rich. We find ourselves falling into the same kind of trappings in our own life. Maybe we're not looking for grandiose things, but at the same time. 
But everything for Solomon was his pet project. It was his own personal thing. Whatever he wanted to excel in, that's what he did. It didn't matter. And if there were seven wonders of the world, he was going to make sure that whatever he did was more grandiose and more impressive than anything else that ever existed. But here's the danger. It is the pride of accomplishment. You become like Nebuchadnezzar, right? Daniel 4.30, look what I've done. Look what I've built. Look at me. Look what I've accomplished with my life. And any time that I find myself starting to boast in something that I've done, I have to remind myself, what do you have, Stephen, that you have not received? In him we live, move, and have our being. I don't take a breath. My heart beats. I don't have to think about it. The only reason why it does that is because he keeps it going. As soon as he stops sustaining, I stop existing. Isn't that a mind blower? Scripture tells us that he continuously sustains all things that he created by the properties and powers with which he created them. And if he ceases to sustain them, they cease to exist. Vaporized. You were never here. But how often do we take advantage of this and we don't even thank him for it? I got up today and I did all of this stuff during the day. And you come home and you tell your wife, look at all the things that I've accomplished. Did you thank God for what you accomplished? Did you thank him for even having anything to accomplish? Just so thankful I have stuff to do when I get up in the morning, if I ever go to bed. Solomon was top dog when it came to horticulture. Verses 4 through 6, the ultimate tree lover. He's the ultimate environmentalist, the ultimate gentleman farmer. He was, if you will, the best at this. He had vineyards. Grew vines, right? He's going to grow grapes. Why? Because in chapter 2, verse 3, he said, I was going to stimulate my body with wine. And I'm not going to drink the worst. I'm going to drink the best. <laughs> So I'm going to have my own vineyards and I will produce my own. He's going to have the best of everything. Natural works of beauty, verse 5. Creative, aesthetically pleasing, fruitful. He's going to plant these gardens, not just one, but multiple parks. Planted all kinds of trees in there, fruit trees, right? This is the stuff that I do for myself. I planted all of these things, right? It's interesting, there's a word in Bavaria that's used for parks, and it's potasim. And we get our English word, ultimately from the same, going back to the French, to Latin, to Greek, and the Greek word is paradise. I remember we moved up here. So I was a kid in SoCal. We had parks. When I moved up here and went to Louisville, now that's a park. Right? That's a legit park. That's a Solomon kind of park. And he built a whole bunch of them for himself. Pleasing to the eye. His own little paradise. If you will, this is the secular Garden of Eden. It's a man-made paradise. You may not have a massive garden in your yard, and you may not have a massive yard. But you still have your little paradise, don't you? That little thing that you cultivate, you put all that time and effort into, 
Solomon looks at that stuff and later he's going to talk about it. But he says, you know, I do all of these things. Verse 18 of chapter 2. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had done right under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. <laughs> I don't take it with me. I leave it behind. And whoever gets it from when I go, who knows what they're going to do with it. They may not cherish this thing as much as I cherished it. They may tear down all my gardens and put up condos. I don't know. Remember watching, I, I like watching these hot rod shows, and I, I like it because of the creativity. I don't covet anything. I, don't, I just appreciate the creativity of man and the fact that he can imagine things and then make it with his hands. And so I watch these shows. These guys fabricate these cars. And it's interesting because this one guy, he saw this pickup truck and he really wanted it. And it was an older gentleman who owned it. This man bought it. He was the one who first purchased it, drove it off the lot. He did not want to change anything on it. Everything he wanted stock and he kept that thing up, right? So his whole life, and guys were coming to him wanting this truck because it was something that was sought after, but he wasn't going to change a thing on it. He wasn't going to sell it because he didn't want him to tear it apart. Well, the dad dies. The daughter then takes the truck, and she sells it to the hot rod guy. He tears it apart, strips it down, cuts it up, and makes something totally different out of it. All that endeavor that that dad put into that truck, he didn't take it with him. And if that's all that he pursued in his life or these kinds of things, in the end, what does it matter? Do we have these kind of pursuits in our life? Things that have nothing to do with eternity? Things that will have no lasting value whatsoever that when we go, it goes? You want to leave behind a house and property for your kids? The best thing I can leave behind for my kids is a legacy of godly living and serving God. Because whatever they own is going to own them. <laughs> That's the rule. Solomon says this is the problem. There is no paradise without God present. People devote themselves to the environment. They slave over it. They serve it. We have this religion now. They are offering up babies on the altar as their sacrifice to the environment. We see this over and over and over again. And Solomon says it's a vain thing. And we all know from the New Testament what's going to happen to all this stuff, right? He's destroying everything. Irrigated chapter 2, verse 6, irrigated forests. He says, I made ponds of water for myself. We still have residual effects of this. We've dug up sites where we've had these things where he irrigated the trees that he planted, these forests that he provided for himself. He was the top dog in empire building, chapter 2, verse 7, as he talks about slaves and servants, the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate boss. I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my household. This was his working force. <laughs> How many employees do you have? Way more than you. <laughs> I got six. <laughs> but they're leaving me, man. <laughs> so it's like, I got to hang on to the twins as long as I can. But this was a sign of status. He was the top dog, verses 7 and 8, in, in possession and wealth. He was the ultimate acquirer. Massed gold and silver for himself. He was the top dog in entertainment. He is the ultimate artistic admirer. I acquired male and female singers. Entertainment. He helps us to understand that entertainment is shallow. It helps us to escape for a little while, but it's nothing that ultimately satisfies us. True enjoyment brings enrichment to our life. We can see this when we see 
when we, re, we sing worship on in in Sunday mornings, right, we sing these songs, it's not only enjoyable, it's also enriching to us. This is what I appreciate. My, my brother, he was a man, one-man band. He would play all over Portland. I'd go watch him do his shows. And, and it, I always pointed out the fact that other people were there. Just highlight when he would play with these other bands because you just listen to the lyrics of their song and then listen to his. Depth here, right? And it's funny because he told me later a lot of his songs he, he wrote after listening to sermons that my dad and I preached. And then he wrote these songs and he would just put them to music. But he would sing these things, but you would listen to these other bands play, and they were just so shallow and empty. And people are jumping around and having a good time. And I realize it's just rejoicing in folly. And I, I couldn't help but just sit there and think, this is total emptiness. And this is how people live their entire life. Entertainment may provide an escape for us, but it's only temporary. It's not lasting. True enjoyment only brings delight. And it can also build our character and enrich the total person. Our society has adopted this pleasure mental ethic. I mean, it's just the workforce today. Young people don't even want to work anymore. There's no work ethic. No one even wants to come to jobs, right? Some guy is working on the transmission for one of our cars, and he says, I hired this kid. He, I tell him, can you get here at 8 in the morning? He shows up at 11, works half an hour, and then wants to take an hour lunch like what but this is this is what we're facing it's all about pleasure right and we live to play and we we work if we work at all so that we can play on the weekends right and we have those weekend warriors so i have to tell you this 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 guy I, I knew he was an attorney i met him in southern california church and the first time i met him like he was just gung-ho and, and the reason why he stuck out when he, I first encountered him was that he actually questioned whether or not John MacArthur was actually saved. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> but he was just, I mean, he was just so fired up, it seemed, for the Lord. Well, he moved to Kansas City. He became a partner in the law firm. All of a sudden, he got into the toys for the weekend. He was making money. Before you know it, he was coming to church periodically. Then it was never... Then he divorces his wife, and this is the life. And in the end, he's going to look back and he's going to say, it was all for nothing. The goal for them in entertainment, and we see this with those in the world, they try to insulate themselves from the pain of reality, numb themselves, distract themselves from the harsh realities of a meaningless existence. Deep down, they know this is so. Solomon's the top dog in sexual pleasures, the ultimate adulterer and sex addict. If I could render this verse this way, and what gives a man sensual delight? A harem of beautiful concubines. That's on top of hundreds of wives he had. And when you look at the statement that he makes about them, he views them merely as just another collectible, just something else that I have to indulge myself with. The problem with feeding appetites is twofold. Pleasure, self-seeking pleasure, always promises it more than it can produce. Solomon says this in Proverbs, and now he realizes this in life. So Proverbs is about proverbial right wisdom in the classroom. Ecclesiastes is wisdom in life. I'm applying these truths to my life. The other thing is this, is that we realize the paradox of hedonism. The more you hunt for pleasure, the less of it you find. The more you give yourself to these things, the more they will take your life from you. Pleasure satisfies only during the act itself. 
And when you think about this, for a few seconds of pleasure, and then it's gone, it's over with. And I've seen guys who've given their marriages away for stuff like this. Solomon says, ultimately, you're going to find this is fleeting. It's like the potato chip commercial, right? I bet you can't eat just one. You put it in your mouth, it tastes so good, and all of a sudden it's gone, and i got to have more. It never satisfies. It keeps you craving. That's the issue of living in the realm of sense. We keep hearing things, right? We keep seeing things. You keep delighting in things. This is living according to sense, not according to eternal realities. Instead of being satisfied, there is just the craving for the next and the next. Verses 9 through 11, the futility of pride and selfish ambition, the futility of fame and popularity. He tried to maximize his fame and popularity. He wanted to be Mr. Popularity, and he established this in verse 9. Then I became great, and I increased. I surpassed far greater than anyone else who ever preceded me. He lays out for us the, the formula for spiritual disaster in verse 10. And the first part, he says to us, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them, and I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. In other words, I had absolutely no self-control. None. I gave in to everything. When you live for the pleasures of today, you are left with a handful of smoke instead of rewards for eternity. Solomon is trying to help us to see this, that we need God and we need to have a godly worldview. This is what we need to take to the world and help them understand. Those that we work with, we know that they're driven by these things. That's our mission field. It isn't just a job to us. It's our mission field. It's who we're supposed to witness to and lead to a relationship with God. Verse 10, the fleeting pleasure is the only reward. He lays this out in regards to the journey. The journey was pleasurable, but the destination only ended up bringing pain for me because in the end, what I found was bitter disillusionment. In verse 11, he says, ultimately, he says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You think about all the exhaustion. The stress, the anxiety of the projects that he worked on and everything, everything that he gave himself to. Every ounce of his energy going to these things. And he says, in the end, when I looked at all the stuff that I amassed and everything that I had and everything that I did, I look at it and I say, it was absolutely worthless. Worthless. Now, if he can say that, right, and the Apostle Paul can say that, compared to knowing Christ, everything is dung. Can we say that in our life? Our ultimate enjoyment cannot come from trying to have fun, although we're allowed to have fun, and God has a sense of humor. He absolutely does. But we have to be careful because we're not supposed to be trying to create an environment for us in which we are just pleasing ourselves, for ourselves, for ourselves. Our connection to God and what is important in light of eternity is the key to life, and it is a life worth living in service to God. May God help us as we seek to do this and lead others to do this as well. Dad, would you close in order?